Okay, I have a pop quiz for you. Pop quiz. I don't know if it's a well-written quiz, which all the quizzes I ever failed is because it was not a well-written quiz. But this one, I'll try it. Okay. <laughs> what has two legs, likes to float on water, and waddles when it walks? Get it? Everybody get it? Everybody convinced? Yes, it's a duck. Okay, good. Good, good. Here's another one. What has wings, soars beautifully in the wind, has a white head, sometimes called bald, the old English way of saying white, a yellow beak, and looks out of place when it walks. An eagle. Wow, you guys are great. Okay, this one's a little bit trickier. So far, most of you are getting 100%. I don't hear everyone answering, so I can't give the A to everybody. But here's another one. This is a little trickier, okay? So you have to put your thinking caps on. What has horns, a head that has, that has what appears to be fur all the way around it, used to wallow in a pond nearby? and sometimes stampedes. Well done. Some of you have a big question mark over your head going, what in the world? A buffalo, a buffalo. These, buffalo, you did, you did well. Most of you get 100. We can go on and on about this. Uh, the animal kingdom is a lot of fun to think about, but animals usually don't have to tell you what they are. You just have to watch what they do. And if you watch an animal, you'll, you'll be able to tell what it is. They don't wear name badges. They don't uh, have to introduce themselves as a duck. They, they just are. They are. That's in their DNA. It's who they are. It's what they were built to do. It's a result of who they are. And because of who they are, they do certain things. They behave in certain ways. You don't have to be a biologist, a zoologist, or an animal's right activist to know what those three animals are. And you can probably find a bunch of other ones that uh, you can just pick up, just watch what they do. And so it is with the Christian. The Christian is what he is. He's a believer in Christ. As we talked for the last several weeks, we look at him, and when you accept Christ as your Savior, it changes the way that you are from the DNA level. It changes who you are. It changes your being. It changes you from the inside out, not from the outside in. It starts inside. Through him, you have an inheritance. In him, you are now part of a family. You are holy before God. That's who you are. This is who you are. You are blessed, blameless, chosen, forgiven, adopted, and seated. You've been made alive, raised up, and seated in the heavenlies. This is who you are. The moment you accept Christ as your Savior, this all happens for you. It infuses you with the new identity. And as we've talked for the last several weeks, our culture is going through identity crisis. The only identity you can change is who you were before Christ in the kingdom of darkness to who you are after Christ. You are now in Him. That's a huge change. No longer are you to walk in that darkness. You are now in the light. Your identity changes. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians. says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God with your body. You are now one of His. And it's important that you get centered on that. You're His. This is who you are in Christ. And you can go back and listen to the sermons we've delivered for the last few weeks of your identity in Him. But you need to be centered on that. You need to get that into your head. This is who you are in Christ. As you know, I like to watch baseball. The World Series last year it was fascinating to watch. One of the hitters, his name is Bryce Harper. He had torn his, his uh, ligament in his elbow, his tendon in his elbow. He wasn't able to play in the field, but he could hit. 
He's a great hitter. He's one of the best. And I watched a little ritual that he did. Every time he stepped into the plate, he would step, before he got in the box, he'd reach down and he would touch the ground and just touch the ground and get some dirt and rub it in his hand. It was really, really a, a pronounced part of his ritual before he'd get in the box. Batters always have rituals, whether it's with their gloves or whether it's their helmet, something. But this was odd because it was so pronounced. He'd reach down, touch the ground, and then he would get back and ready. And so one of the commentators was talking about that. Obviously, he observed it too, and he asked Bryce Harper, why do you do that? And the story goes, back in 2021, Bryce Harper took a 97-mile-an-hour fastball to the face. He's in the box, and it came at him, and he pulled back, and it just went poof, right into his face. That had to hurt. It knocked him to the ground, bloodied up his nose, but he didn't break anything. A couple days later, he came back in, and he was unsettled the whole time. So he got with a sports psychologist. He got with a hitting coach, and what he does before he gets in the box at this time in his career is he touched the ground, it was his ritual, he touched the ground to get centered, to feel the earth, to be present, not to go backwards, not to get too far ahead, but just to be right here. And then he would step up and feel present in the box. He would forget about getting hit in the face. It's a very brave thing to stand in a box with a guy throwing a 90-mile-an-hour rock right by your face, and he was able to stand there and do his job. And sometimes you need a little ritual. Sometimes you need something that will just change the way that you look and the way that you feel, and you might need a little ritual for this as well. Maybe something that will help you. And so maybe every morning before you get out of bed, you need to remind yourself that you are his workmanship. You can lay there in bed before you get out of bed. Before you hit the floor, you just think, I am his workmanship. He's working in my life. I'm his workmanship. Maybe it's some stress you're going through. Maybe it's a, a, a anxiety that you're facing. You just need to remind yourself, I'm his. Maybe you feel abandoned and alone. You need to say, I am adopted. He chose me. Maybe you struggle with rejection. I am his. He picked me. This is who I am in Christ. I'm adopted. I have been forgiven. Maybe this is the things in the past you wrestle with. You need to stop and that little ritual every morning before you go to bed. I have been forgiven. That guilt that I feel is no longer necessary. I'm done with that. And you need to run this through your mind. I'm his workmanship. I'm uniquely gifted. I'm equipped. And I'm deployed for good works. God has a great plan for my life. It's a good plan. I'm going to follow it. And maybe you need to remind yourself that every morning before you get into the box of your life, before you step and get working, you need to remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Because the gospel changes your identity, changes who you are. And the book of Ephesians is built around that concept. The first several chapters in every one of Paul's books, it always starts with the bad news of who you were, and then it changes. And now, who you are in Christ, and then now what you do. Romans breaks at Romans uh, 8. It changes, and then it changes again in Romans 12. It changes. It says, now that you know who you are, this is what you're supposed to do. Now that you've been changed, now you need to do something else. And there's a little bit of a doctrinal thing that goes on inside of Christian circles about this idea of lordship salvation versus what free grace is. Lordship salvation says if you're saved, then you need to behave so and so way in order to be saved. You need to make him the lord of your life in order to be saved. The free grace side of it says, no, no, what you are is you are saved without having to change anything. 
Free grace would say that you don't have to do anything. You just accept Jesus as your Savior, and you are saved. And as it is with most things, they polarize themselves. Lordship's way over here. Free grace is way over here. The reality of it is it's right here in the middle, is that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, things ought to change naturally. You don't change to become saved. You change because you already are. It's kind of like, guys, when you got married, you changed your clothes. That was the first step. And you changed a few things about you. And it's natural. That should happen. You didn't do all those things to get married. Well, you might have to, to convince her that you would. But you, but you don't do that to get married. You do that because you are. And wives, you did the same thing. You changed. And that's life. And when you accept Christ as your Savior, a natural byproduct of that is you change the way you live. It has to. And if it doesn't, you kind of have to stand back and go, oh, that's weird. Let's pray for that person. Because there should be a change. Something should be a little bit different. Something should, should change. And what Paul uses in his gospel or in his epistles is this word walk. How you walk. It's a metaphor. He's not talking about your gait and how you stride. It's how you live. And he uses it seven times from this point forward in the book of Ephesians. He uses it in chapter 2, 4, 17, does it twice, chapter 5, verse 2, 8, and 15. He talks about walking. If you have your Bibles, I want to talk us through this section of Scripture found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. This is where the book changes. He goes from who you are now to what you do. He goes from what you were to now that you're in Christ. Now, how does that change your behavior? How does that change the way you live? How is this going to make you different in how you face life around you? And I'm going to here to tell you today, it's not easy. It is a whole lot easier to live in darkness. It's so much more natural. When he talks about how you're going to live in the light, how you're going to walk in light, this is what he's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4.1. He says... Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's a heavy statement. Walk in a manner that's worthy of how you have been called in Christ Jesus. It's going to change the way that you walk, your way that you live, the way that you do life around you. I therefore, he says in verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a worthy or walk worthy of the calling that you have received. And then he lists in this section four different ways to walk. For the end of the book, there's 25 different things, and we're going to try to figure out how to do the 20, how to do all 21 of them next week. It's a lot. It's a fire hose worth of change, okay? But we're going to tackle just four of them, and these ones are big enough as it is, as he explains how we're supposed to walk, how we are supposed to live. He says this, Walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love. Let's break that down, okay? Walk with all humility. Now, how do you walk with all humility? What does that look like? Well, here's the first step. Humility. Humility is a proper assessment of who you are. Some people will look at humility and they'll think if they need to downplay their abilities. They need to, to kind of bad talk themselves or not, not be very complimentary of themselves. But that's not humility. Humility is rightfully understanding your giftedness. Humility is understanding what you're good at and applying those gifts to the right spot. Sometimes you might look at a humility. You're not supposed to accept a compliment or supposed to downplay what you're good at. That's not what humility is. If you're a good teacher, be a good teacher. If you're a good artist, be a good artist. If you're a great mechanic, be a great mechanic. If you're a good uh, 
accountant, be a good accountant. Whatever you're good at, be confident in that. Sometimes you get the idea of humility is to be self-deprecating all the time. No, I'm terrible. No, I can't really do that. That's called fishing for a compliment because what you're looking for is someone to come alongside of you and say, oh, no, you're really good at that. And now you're fishing for compliments. You're trying to get people to praise you. And that's just backdoor arrogance. If you're good at something, be good at something. Just don't lord it over people. Don't lord it over that you are the best. You kind of brag about that. Don't, don't have it that way. Humility is being aware of what you're good at and then doing it and then applying it in that situation. The contrast of this would be arrogance, and you can smell pride and arrogance a mile away. It's one of the most foul smells ever. You can smell pride and arrogance. Humility is the opposite of that. Arrogance does not unify. It divides. Humility brings people together. Walk with humility. What's fascinating about this section is it's written towards Christians in a church. This is what we're supposed to be like with one another. We're supposed to walk with humility here first. Walk with humility with one another. Paul says that our walk, our way of living, should be marked with a quiet confidence in our ability, with the goal of encouraging others. This is an attribute seen in most people, and this is not seen in most people. Most people don't have this. Christians are supposed to have that quiet confidence quiet ability or a knowledge of their ability. This next one is closely related to the word humility. It's gentleness. We're supposed to be gentle with one another, exercising self-control. It's close to the word meekness, but don't think of it as weakness. It's not. Gentleness is the idea expresses power with reserve. It's able to control that power. They have strength, but they don't necessarily have to use it. Gentleness begins with the Lord's inspiration and finishes by His direction and empowerment. It's a divinely balanced virtue that can only operate through faith. It operates by faith because we as humans have a tendency to use brunt or, or a blunt force to get things done. We tend to be pushers. We want to fight. We want to get things done in a, in a hurried way. And if I could be transparent with you, gentleness is hard for me. I like to fight. <laughs> in, a, in a healthy sense. When I think that something needs to be done, let's fight. Let's get it done. And I don't mean brawling. I mean, let's just do whatever we have to do to get that done. And one example of that is this building. When we decided to move in 2017, we started looking for this building. It took a year to negotiate this property, a year. And I wrestled with that because I'm having to fight I'm having to fight with realtors. I'm having to fight with AT&T. I'm having to fight with all kinds of bankers. I'm having to fight. And at what point do you stop fighting and let God take that over? And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It takes a lot of humility. I just don't know. And I struggle with this because I'm a pusher. I'm a, hey, that's what we need to get done. Let's get that done. Let's, let's go. And I have to stand back and go, wait a minute. Am I pushing too hard? Do I, am I not being gentle? Am I being too brutish? Or do I need to stand back and let God work? And that's a tight tension right there. And you only find it through humility and a lot of good counselors. We had a great elder board. We still do. And to think through this and be patient and allow God to work. But this idea of gentleness does not come along very easily. It's hard, especially when you're used to life having to push, having to fight, and having to fight, and having to fight. But then you have to stand back and just let God do it in his time. So this one's hard for me, gentleness, to be patient and to just let God work. Humility and gentleness are attributes that war against that natural inclination of the heart, which is to be arrogant and, and powerful, to push something through. That's not what we're supposed to be as believers. Humble and gentle, but not a doormat. 
and not self-deprecating all the time. Somewhere in the middle, and it's hard to find that balance. But I'm going to talk about this next one, and you're not going to like it. I don't like it. And that's this word called patience. So I'm going to stop now. Patience. You're not going to like how this was written at all. This one is even worse. It says, when you operate with humility and gentleness, you're going to require this virtue, and it's hard because you're going to have to learn to be patient. Thankfully, it's a fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to ask for patience. The Spirit has already given it to you. He's in you. It's, Lord, allow that patience to come out. Allow me to learn to be humble, gentle, and willing to wait. But this this is a little bit more than this. This word here is macrothumia. It's the Greek word, and it means the spirit which bears insult and injury without bitterness and without complaint. Ready to leave? Let me read it again, because I've been reading it all week, thinking, yeah, I don't like this at all. The spirit of patience is that he in, bears insult and injury without bitterness and without complaint. I'm going to read it again, because you don't believe me. <laughs> That word means the spirit which bears insult and injury without bitterness or complaint. That's hard to pull off. It's the spirit which bears the sheer foolishness of men without irritation. A synonym would be long-suffering. It's the spirit which can suffer unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without complaint. I got on an airplane twice this last week and was thinking about that verse right there. Okay, so I'm sitting on the plane. There's some, there's some rules on an airplane. We all know what they are. They're unwritten, but they're rules, right? So I'm sitting somewhere in the back of the plane, and the plane stops. And I love this moment when the plane stops, because when the plane stops, people all of a sudden stand up. Like they're going to get off the plane at any minute. They're just, they just they stand up. But the rule is this. You can stand up, but you can't run down the hall, down the aisle, right? You're just supposed to stand up right there. You don't run down the hall, down the aisle. So I'm sitting there, and this group from the back, they stood up, and they ran to the front of the plane. And they stopped right in front of me. And I looked at them, and I thought, they don't know the rules. How do they not? I need to teach them the rules. <laughs> Suffer unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without complaint. I'm not allowed to teach them this rule. They got up and they ran to the front, but what was funny is I was passive aggressive. I'll admit it. As they stood right there, I heard them talking. They said, well, we have to catch, we're, we, have to, we have to connect our connecting flight. To which I thought, yeah, none of us have to. I mean, you're the only one that has a connecting flight. I'm sure you, you need to get there first. We'll wait, we'll wait for you. No, I didn't say that at all. I, so they time to, to leave. It was, they're going to rush by me. And I grabbed my bag and I stood right in front of them. And then I, I slowly walked out because the lady in front of me was not a fast walker. So I was teaching them through passive-aggressive means how to be patient. But that's the idea of patience. You're going to be, deal with that in a godly way with humility, gentleness, and patience. This is how we are to live with one another because this is how God has dealt with you. I love that idea of hesed in scripture. It's that idea of this, his never-ending faithful love, long-suffering. Think about how you have needed that in your life and how that person who stood up and ran through the aisle of the Southwest Airlines flight needs it in theirs. 
and then come up with a passive-aggressive way to teach them that. No. But that's how you're supposed to behave towards them because that's what you've needed. That's what you get to give to other people because you've experienced what God has. And it's really true. The patience that you need is already in you. The Spirit is there. Lord, teach me patience today. Teach me patience today. No, no, Lord, allow patience to come out. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, let this come out of me today. That's why you need that reset button at night or reset button in the morning. Lord, this is how I need to be. Not so that I can be a Christian, but because I have Christ. This is what I need to be to those around me. Now that we are in Him and He is in us, we're supposed to walk like Him. We're supposed to be humble, gentle, patient, but it gets even more challenging. Bearing with one another in love. Now, I've read that over and over again. Do you know that none of us is going to do this right the first time? That we're all going to have those moments to where we need help doing this? Because this isn't natural to us. We're going to learn to do this together. We need a team. Look to your left and look to your right. Here's your team. You really want a team? Go to a small group. Because there you will get to know people and you're going to learn how to do this together. Because this isn't natural. But this is our calling. This is who we're supposed to be. This is what God has invited us to enter into. And we're going to need a group of people to gather around us to help us do this as one. To strive together for that common goal. This is what God wants our church to look like. Humble, gentle, patient, working together as a team to accomplish the goal that he wants us to look like. This is the workmanship that he's talking about. This is what's supposed to come out of you. He's writing this to the church. This is how we're supposed to be towards each other. This is how we work together. This is what our culture is against, and this is what our church culture needs to be like and you need each other. I was playing golf with a friend. This was 25 years ago. I stopped playing golf when I had children because I all of a sudden don't have any money and I don't have any time, okay? And so I stopped playing golf. But 25 years ago, I was playing golf with a friend of mine. His name is Steve Pearson. He was the worship leader at a church, and at the church I was at in Dallas. And Steve was a pretty avid golfer. I was not, and I confessed my lack of ability when I got on the course with him. He was, he was sentenced to ride with me uh, for that 18 holes. And so we're going, in, and after about three or four holes, I just said to him, Steve, I'm really not, that very, not very good at this. And he said, yeah, noticed. <laughs> um, and so we're playing golf together, and we, got to the, we, we went to his ball, which was in the middle of the fairway. We couldn't find <laughs> mine. And so we went to his ball, and he says, I said, Steve, do you have any tips for me? I've never taken a golf lesson before. Uh, I've just always just kind of got here and hacked my way through. Just hit it hard and find it later. That's kind of the motto of playing golf. And so he says, yeah, let me show you this. And so he gave me the golf club, and he says, here, you need to hold it like this. And I, I held the golf club. He says, you need to stand like this. And don't worry about hitting it hard and far. Just worry about hitting it. That's it. Just worry about keeping your head down and going through the swing and allow it to just take care of itself. Just don't worry about hitting it so hard. Just worry about just an even swing. And I did it, and it went straight. <laughs> I said, Steve, that was awesome, but that felt all weird. I didn't like how that felt, and he said something to me that I've never forgotten. Well, do you want to feel weird or hit it straight? I said, I think I'd like to hit it straight. He says, okay then. Do this every time. He says, you'll feel, you, eventually you'll get used to that, and eventually you'll enjoy it. But if, if you want to keep hitting it to the left and the right, just go back to how you were hitting it before. There's no problem. We'll just wait for you in the clubhouse when you're done. 
But if you want to hit it straight, and if you want to hit it right down the middle, then this is what it's going to, and it's going to feel weird at first. It's going to feel unnatural, but this is how this works. And if you can do this, then what will happen in the end is you're going to hit it right where you want it. And that's kind of how life works with this. None of this is natural. We grow up in an environment where pride, brutality, and demanding is natural to us. That's just who we are. If you just admit that, you'll be happier. That's just who we are. And God wants to come into your life and change that. He wants to create in you a heart of humility, a heart of gentleness, and a heart of patience. And you know what people need around you? They need humility, gentleness, and patience. And you're going to need to bear with one another while you're doing this because this is hard work, especially if you're married. Do this in your marriage. You want to create an environment in your marriage where there's peace and rest? Humility, gentleness, and patience. And it's going to take time. That's why it's bearing with one another. It's not a one-and-done type of thing. This is something that's going to take effort. It's going to take effort over a period of time to have these attributes a part of you. And I think it's interesting that Paul starts with these in verses 1 through 6. He's going to list another 21 more things that we're going to need to do differently. If you're looking for something to do today, start reading there in verse 7 and just you'll find it. One of them is, you know, don't be angry and not be angry, but don't sin. I'm good at the angry part. <laughs> the sin part is a little bit more challenging, but read through that. But start with these three, humble, gentle, and patient. And then do that over time in a group with your spouse, with your kids, in a small group here at the church, and you'll begin to see God changing your life. This is how you're supposed to be. We spend a lot of time on who you are, but now it needs to produce fruit, and this is it. This is what it's supposed to look like. And then notice he finishes off making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It takes work. That's why it says make every effort within a church to live this way towards one another. Humble, gentle, and patient. Knowing that it's going to take time and knowing that it's going to take work, but the Spirit is working in you. Then he gives a crescendo. It's kind of like a hymn. It's in verse 3. Notice what it says. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You're to work as one. As one. And this is what makes the church so attractive. It's not how clear and concise we can be in sharing the gospel. It's important, but you want to know what makes the church just a juggernaut of community change and life change? is when a group of people come together with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, knowing that they were all called by one God, one Savior, one faith, one hope, one baptism, working as one. All of a sudden, people around the, you will look at you and go, wow, you're different, yeah. You ought to come to my church. We're a bunch of different kind of people there. Come on over. It makes the church a powerful weapon that the gates of hell can't even stand up against it because you've changed who you are in the sense of you changed what you do. This is what God wants us to do, and this is what God wants us to be as a church. You've had this happen to you before. I know it's happened to me. You're driving down 42nd Street or you're driving down Grandview when somebody does the unthinkable. They get in front of you. And they drive in a way that you don't like. And you might be tempted to honk your horn. You might be tempted to swerve around them and cut in front of them real quick. And you might be just getting ready to do that. And then you notice, I recognize that car. And then you realize it's Heather Kirk. <laughs> or you realize it's somebody that you know. And just 
10 seconds before then, you were screaming mad. Oh, these people are just terrible drivers. And then they do that to you and you want to say something to me. You look at them and go, oh, I know, I know. See you on Sunday, sister. It's hard to be mad at somebody that you know. Now, if it was a stranger, you would be mad. But if all of a sudden you know them, it changes things. This is why small groups, getting to know one another are so important. Because you're much more gracious with the people that you know. The people that you love. The people that have gone through the same experience with you. They know you and you know them. That's why it's so important. This might be the greatest act of evangelism ever is extending these things to the people around you, walking with humility, gentleness, patience, serving one to us. What does that say? I can't read in the back. There, I went too fast. Go back, back up. It says, it. walking with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing together for the common goal of representing him, wherever you might be. You might not even have to say a word. They're going to notice that about you. And as they do, they'll be drawn to Christ. So, this week, where do you need that humility? Where do you need that gentleness? Where do you need that patience? And confess that to the Lord. Lord, this is what you want to come out of me. So, Lord, how should this come out of me this week? And let him guide you in that. And, Lord, how do I need to bear with others as they learn to do this? Because nobody's going to do it perfectly the first time. Second time, fifth time, okay, it's been ten years. This is difficult. This is against the grain of who we are as humans. That's why he changes us first and then asks us to do this second. And so we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And this is how we're supposed to walk. This is our behavior, walking this way. And so ask yourself as we pray, Lord, where do I need to walk with more humility? Where do I need to walk with gentleness? Where do I need to walk with patience? And how can I help those around me walk in this way?